0: is um, An interesting fact that you've now learned. It's for ages eight to adult. Okay. Such a wide range. Sorry. That's such a wide range. Yeah. Well, don't you like those nine to ninety things? Yeah, those are funny. Yeah. Because it's like after you turn ninety,
1: you're not allowed. To yeah, you're not allowed to play this anymore.
0: <laughs> it's like, oh no, it's my ninety-first birthday, and I can no longer play with a (laughs) Pop-O-Matic. All right, so, Dostoevsky, what happens to Grandmother? How does she get messed up? In The Gambler, this would be... this text on which much of the final exam will focus. Yes, Abigail, you look like you want to say. I'm assuming yes, that book. Like oh, okay. <laughs> does she die? Does she not die? Well, it's, it's from 1862, so she's definitely dead. Because she's already in her 70s, so they're waiting for her to die. So now here it is, 2019. I feel like I can guarantee she dies. Okay. But not in the book. But, oh. <laughs> the book does not record her death. Um, <laughs> all right, so um, anyone else? Do you remember she comes to uh, Rouletteburg? Roulettenburg? Okay, and uh, what is her attitude towards the general and towards all the people who've been there for a while? The general and his whole family, and hangers on, and um, the, the, the French woman he's courting and so on. What's her attitude towards them? Can I guess? <laughs> this is great. Yes, you can guess. This is the literature part of the class. <laughs> Somehow, yeah. Well, I feel like the logical thing would be for her to, like, hate all of them because they have just been waiting for her to die. Okay, good. Yeah, so, and what's the big surprise that she has for them? The big surprise, basically, you already know. It's not only is she alive, but she's here. They think she's on her deathbed, and they keep reading telegrams. "Is she dead yet? Is she dead?" There's a great line in Shakespeare's Richard II, when Richard is waiting for his bossy uncle to die. Um, Richard became king at, as a child, and his uncles sort of told him what to do. But now he is an adult and his and is bridling at his uncles and one of his um he hears that his bossy uncle is on his deathbed and he says to his to to um his friends and and um, and hangers-on that they should go see him on his deathbed and then Richard says pray hate um pray god we may make haste and come too late so he's really hoping that No matter how fast he goes, it'll be too late to have to listen to his bossy uncle on his deathbed. Unfortunately for Richard, it's not too late, and his bossy uncle has a very famous long, 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 long speech Mm -hmm. about how Richard is not doing the right thing. So they keep hoping for a telegram. Oh, I certainly hope Grandmother doesn't die, because if she died, we'd be rich, and um, I wouldn't want to be rich at the expense of hoping that she would die. Um wouldn't be my fault if she died but I wouldn't hope for it. They don't quite say that but how would that connect up? I mean basically what's happening will will um, turn away from the gambler in a moment but it's worth thinking about even what's happened before that which at least one of you <laughs> has gotten to um, which is the uh, the narrator's Alexia's um, confidence in his gambling or also his lack of confidence and um, when he's gambling for Paulina he seems to feel that that is a different experience than gambling for himself these are all things to think about in, in thinking about the psychological experience of gambling It's something that happens in Colson Whitehead as well. He's not gambling with his own money. He's gambling with the money that's been put up for him by by the Atlantic magazine. And so if it's not your own money, you might have a somewhat different attitude towards it from if it is your own money. This should make no difference in roulette. That is, roulette is a game of pure chance. There is no skill whatever. In playing roulette, if you watch a James Bond movie and Bond is doing <laughs> really well at the roulette table, that says nothing about how cool and debonair James Bond is. Um, it's pure luck if you do well at the roulette play, at the roulette table. If you do well at poker, poker is a game of skill, and there is luck that can that can mess you up. But as the famous last lines. Um, of Dashiell Hammett's novel um, or novella it's really they're two long short stories that together form uh, a short novel and um, they're amazing and the first and what gives the title to the short novel is called the big knockover and at the very end of the big knockover the the narrator um, says that he played the cards that he was dealt. It just happened that way. I played the cards that I was dealt, and I played them so that I would get the benefit of the breaks, but it happened that way. So get. what does the phrase getting the benefit of the breaks mean? Do people know that phrase? You guys really got to bone up on your 20th century slang. It's important. Yeah? Is it like... Is it- Related to them's the breaks, where it's just like yeah, yeah, it's thing. the opposite of them. Them's the breaks is um, things didn't work out, that was bad luck. Um, you know, that, that was an unfortunate piece of bad luck. Uh, you were about to win in Scrabble, and then your opponent got the eye that she was looking for, and whoever looks for an eye in Scrabble, but that gave her a bingo. So, them's the breaks, you outplayed her until the very last moment. Um, so them's the breaks, yeah, that's good 20th century slang for, yeah, <laughs> um, for things working out badly. But what would it mean um, to try to play for the benefit of the... Br- to try to get the benefit of the breaks? What does, what does breaks mean in them's the breaks? It's an interesting word. Kind of how everything falls together at the end. Yeah, or just just how the random... Um, where the randomness of the process went. That is that is, that you're in gambling, you're betting on things that occur to some extent randomly. The cards that you get, you get randomly in a well-shuffled deck. Um, most decks, by the way, are not well-shuffled. This is something that really screwed up poker players. This is a really interesting fact, that um, mainly when you're playing, this is not true in casinos, but until very recently it was true at bridge tournaments, when cards are shuffled, they're shuffled two or three times. And it really takes seven or eight shuffles to truly randomize a deck of cards. And so if you shuffle a deck of cards two or three times, yeah, they're shuffled, but they're, they're a lot less random than you think they are. And a mathematician and um, magician... Um, named Percy um, Diaconis is actually one of the people who figured this out. Um, he was he was friends with oh god oh uh, with Rick um, what's the magician Rick? He died he died like two years ago. He's in a lot of David Mamet movies. At any rate, Percy Diaconis was friends with him, and um, Ricky J, Ricky Jay. Do people know Ricky Jay? Oh, you should watch him on YouTube. He's really astonishing. Um, he does amazing card tricks, and he's in a, he's in a bunch of uh, um, David Mamet movies and in gambling movies. Uh, he was also in the show, which I'm sure you don't remember, called Fast Forward, that was canceled halfway through the season, which was a real drag. Uh, the Sad Things You Have Been Spared. It's so good. <coughs> All right, so what um, Percy Diaconis, who's a mathematician... Um, figured out by looking at hands and looking at wh- how shuffling work that you can't randomize a deck in the two or three shuffles that card players always use, and he he said you could definitely if you had a if you had a fair shuffle you could definitely randomize it in seven shuffles and you'd become close to it in six shuffles, and you know fair shuffle is where you're not doing any kind of tricks and where you're also competent that is that the cards that are that are flowing into each other are not going into huge clumps. So when he said this, bridge players were dubious, but they accepted it. They thought it would make no difference. And what they found was they played a lot worse when they were playing hands that had been fairly shuffled. Because it turned out that without knowing it, they were really good bridge players, world-class bridge players, were... Guessing and predicting other people's hands partly on the basis of what the previous hands had been which is not supposed to be doable if things are happening randomly but because they weren't happening randomly they intuited without knowing that they were intuiting it they were intuiting the distribution of cards in the next deal that is they would look at their hand and they actually had not bad intuitions of what other people had and this was something that was going on unconsciously. They didn't know that this wasn't a fair shuffle. They didn't know that they were um, guessing at other people's hands on the basis of anything except their plays and the dummy, but they were. And when the, when the cards were shuffled fairly, their, their, their play went down tremendously, and they just felt frustrated and angry that, that somehow the cards weren't behaving the way cards are supposed to behave if they're random. But they were actually looking at how cards were supposed to behave if they were only pseudo-random or semi-random. They were really good at semi-random distributions of cards because the other semi, the other half of that semi was what they had an intuition about how things would fall out. But when cards were genuinely random their play went really down. So the breaks are how, I think it's actually related to breaking in pool. Do you know what it means to to do a break in pool? What's it mean? Do you um, play pool for money, too? Not for money. Not all right. right. But, um, so original, in the beginning of it, it's like all the balls are in a triangle, and you hit the cue ball, and it breaks. Yeah, and so all the balls break, and um, that's a pseudo-random thing. That is the direction the balls are going to go in. Um, will change um, enormously and unpredictably in one in micrometer differences in where the cue ball hits the front ball in the triangle. So if the if a if a pool table is set up right, you can never score on a break. That is um, the only thing that's set up is that no ball will go into a pocket, but the balls will be then distributed randomly all over the table. So the way the cards break, the way the balls break. Those are just ways of saying that things have occurred randomly, and um, when they occur randomly, you then play whatever random situation you're given. But, so to get the benefit of the breaks, so them's the breaks means, okay, I was hoping this would happen, and there was a two out of three chance that it would happen, but it didn't. I was hoping that my dice would um, show a seven, What's the what are the odds for a pair of dice showing a seven? Anyone? Zero. This is zero. No. Oh, no bad a pair bad. of dice? Yes. What's the yeah, odds bad. of one die showing a seven? Zero, unless it's a unless it's a a die with more than six faces. How about two dice? Pretty good. <laughs> we should play craps sometime. So how does a die, how, how do dice show sevens? Six and one. Four. Three. Yeah, okay. So think about it. If I roll one die, then a second die, what do I have to do to get a seven? So I roll a die, I get a four. This is what you were just doing in your head. I roll a die and I get a four, what do I need? Three. What are the odds? After, After I roll one die. One and six. Right. So you're always rolling one die and then another die when you roll two dice. So you look at the first die, it doesn't matter which of the two you look at, and there's a one in six chance that the second die will have the complementary face. So if you look at the six first, there's a one in six chance that the, um, that the second die will have a one. If you look at the one first, there's a one in six chance that the second die will have a six. So the odds of rolling a seven are one in six. What are the odds of rolling doubles? Yeah, also 1 and 6, because if you look at one die and then any roll roll on the other die could work depending on what the first die is, so you roll a 3, then a 3 will work. You roll a 5, then a 5 will work. Um, If you're looking for 7s, you roll a 3 and then a 4 will work. You roll a 1 and then a 6 will work. So the odds of rolling doubles, the odds of rolling 7 are the same. The odds of rolling double 6s? Or after you know, you, you roll two dice. So what are the odds of rolling double sixes? One in thirty-six. Yeah. So the thing is that to get a seven, it's actually completely uninteresting what the first die shows. The first die only determines what you need in the second die. Same with doubles. It's completely uninteresting what the first die shows. It only determines what the second die also has to show but it can be any of the six, you're not going to say, okay, I really need doubles. First, I'm going to roll one die. Oh, no, it's a four, because it doesn't change anything. If the first die is a four, then you need a four. If the first die is a one, you need a one. However, if you need double sixes, then you have to roll a six with the first die and then a six with the second die. So if, if it's immaterial what happens when you roll the first die, if that doesn't matter, then you have a 1 in 6 chance of getting what you want. If it does matter, say you needed a 10, then if you roll a 3, what's happened? You can't can't do it. So if you are um, um, playing dice and you need a 10 and you roll a 4... Then you might have gotten a break, and you might bet higher because you got the benefit of a break at that point. Um, So to play so you get the benefit of the breaks means to look at the odds given how things are and what the odds are that you'll get something and what the odds are that you won't. And to look for the benefit of the breaks is, is another way of saying to play the odds. So playing for the benefit of the breaks, that's something that you can do in most games, of, most, most games of skill, even if they have a large element of chance. You can do it in most games of skill. You can't play for the benefit of the breaks in roulette. There is no strategy for winning roulette. There's absolutely no strategy for winning roulette. There's strategies for losing slower. There's strategies for losing faster. But there's no strategy for winning roulette, except tripling your bet every time if you have infinite money. Then the probability that you'll win becomes extremely high. But but if there is a limit to how much you can bet, there is no strategy that you can win in roulette. So that's a little couplet that you should take with you to Vegas or Atlantic City or even to Everett Um, if there is a limit on the bet then there's no way to win at roulette see, poetry I'm a regular mandible alright so if you think you're going to win in roulette as grandmother does as you will see when you read The Gambler as the narrator does where what's the nature of that thought what is it do you, do you guys know about the hot hands phenomenon in basketball you've never heard of hot hands so what is it it's when a basketball player has like made a lot of shots in a row mm-hmm. and usually they feel something or people just think they feel something where they can kind of shoot from anywhere and it's going to go in yeah and like they'll pull up from really deep and yeah. They, don't really, they won't miss for a while right and so there was a study or there were several studies that showed that in fact there was no such thing that what was happening was that players were if they hit three or four shots in a row that would be like flipping a coin and getting heads three or four times in a row you think oh, oh wow it's my day this coin is doing what it's supposed to be doing but that, in fact, if you looked at random expectations for hitting shots, you're going to get streaks like this that come up randomly, and they don't have anything to do with hot hands. That actually turned out not to be true. It turned out later and later more detailed studies showed there is such a thing as a hot hands phenomenon and that some, t- some days people are on, and they're actually shooting better than they are on other days. But it's way overstated. So what happens when you're playing roulette, what happens in the gambler when they're playing roulette, is that if they win three or four times in a row, they think they're hot. They think that they're bound to win. And that feeling that you're bound to win, that's something that happens both to grandmother and to the narrator. That, that is, it's like their night. Every, every bet they're placing is winning. It's definitely their night. And there's also the counter experience, which is they give up betting, okay, it's I've lost five in a row, and I'm just not going to bet on this number anymore because I'm going to be wise. And so they don't bet and turn away from the table, and then the number comes up just after they haven't bet. So everyone's had some version of that experience in their lives, right? So that is what roulette is trading on. And in particular then, what it's trading on is a sense, an internal feeling that you have that you're hot, that you're, um, you're going to win tonight, mm-hmm. that you can feel it. Has everyone had versions of that? Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes you're right and sometimes you're not. And in roulette, unlike in poker, where being confident might actually affect your play for the better, unlike in poker, in roulette, being hot or feeling that you're hot makes zero difference. Nothing any player can do will make any difference to the return that they get in roulette beyond not betting or betting. The only thing that makes a difference to how much they, how much they win or lose, which is to say, in the long run, to how much they lose is how much they bet. The less they bet, the less they lose. The more they bet, the more they lose. Poker is not like that. Poker is a game which is a game of skill and where the better players will take the worse players, will take the money of uh, the worst players, even if the worst players feel hot. There's, uh, when I was a, um, in high school, did people know what a dead man's hand is? Not a phrase you know? I think, I think it's and two are the worst. Yeah, no, no, it's not the worst hand. It's aces and eights, so um, it's a standard thing to say at a poker table. If someone has aces and eights, you say, ooh, dead man's hand. Um, aces and eights are what Wild Bill Hickok had when he was shot. If you um, saw Deadwood, anyone ever see, see any episodes of Deadwood? Well, You should watch it. You guys don't watch enough TV. You don't read enough novels. <laughs> you just spend all your little... time for all this stuff. I don't play softball. No, but, like, it's not like you didn't know, like, old televisions. Like, you know the OA, which is, like, a relatively recent Netflix show. Yeah. What do you, do you know, like, I'm not country? playing softball. No, I just don't play softball. All the time that opens up. Well, nobody else. Oh, they They're wanted me. But admit they also don't. <laughs> all right. <laughs> what can I say? Um, there's all the stuff that you guys know that I don't. How's that? If you were teaching the class, I would have no idea. Ninety percent of the, of your references, I would have no idea what you were saying. Seriously. I'm not hard to believe, but continue. All right. <laughs> 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 um, dead man's hand, aces and eights, and um, so what happened? What when we were in high school, uh, there was a belief that went round among all us poker players that you could never lose with aces and eights, that it was a sign from God that you bet everything if you had aces and eights. And then whenever anyone got aces and eights, they would win, and, and, and my friend Doug Evans would say, see, it never fails. Aces and eights always wins. Now, aces and eights wins a lot. It's, it's two pair, and the aces are the highest pair that you can get. So aces and eights wins a lot. Occasionally, someone would actually beat aces and eights with a full house, and everyone would just wonder, how could that happen? So all of that is um, confabulating a pattern where there is no pattern. It's seeing a pattern where there is no pattern. And the thinking, where this is interesting for thinking about narrative, because one of the things that Colson Whitehead says is that every poker player has a narrative. And there are two kinds of narratives that he talks about. Um, Can I assume you all finished um, (laughs) <laughs> the Noble Hustle? Can I, could I bet a lot that you've all finished it? Would you recommend that I bet a lot with my Do colleagues? Like what? Like you? <laughs> uh, would you invest in a bet? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was a good way of my finding that out. Okay, so final exam, Noble Hustle, The Gambler, Multi Falcon. Um Colson Whitehead, who's who's a great storyteller. I mean that's that's what he does is he writes fiction. But one of the, he he has two things about that he that two ways that narrative is important in poker. Uh, one is the story of how you lost. And people almost never tell stories about how they won but that's partly because people rarely win it all. If you're doing the World Series of Poker, most people are going to be are going to be busted. So one story is always a story about how you lost. And if you tell that story, how do you think that story will always go in a poker game? How many people have ever played poker? Okay. Um, well, how do you think that story will go in a poker game? Yeah. It's how you almost won. Yeah, it's always stories about how you almost won, about um, <coughs> the how close it was or how you made one decision that could have gone either way but you made the wrong decision or how you made the right decision but some bizarre thing happened to the cards what were the odds well it's uh, Whitehead describes he only really tells the story of one hand in detail one of his own hands in detail in The Noble Hustle and it's the hand that busted him and the story that he tells is how he should have won that hand and he was playing the breaks he had a 94 percent chance of winning is what he says and um but the six percent chance of losing is what happened to him and it happened finally on the last card is he lost on the last card and the odds that he were going to that he was going to lose were only six out of a hundred and if he'd won he would have been on easy street but he lost. So that's the story that he tells, and it's a good story. And i have just given you a spoiler. But he, th- he gives you spoilers from the start. He says, look, let me tell you, you probably know by now that I did not win the World Series in poker. Because if I did, I wouldn't be writing this book. But he didn't. So you know he's going to lose, and then he tells a story of how he's going to lose. So that's one way that narrative appears in... The Noble Hustle and appears is part of what Whitehead who specializes in narrative is describing. The other thing he says which is much more particular to what poker players do and to the skill that poker players show is he quotes his coach as saying that every good poker player is putting a story over in the course of the game that is that they are themselves the writer of a story which is a kind of drama that's occurring in the course of the game so even though the cards are they're getting cards randomly what you want to do if you want to force other people out of a game part of what the, the way that the way um, the way poker tournaments work have you played in tournaments So the way poker tournaments, I haven't either, but the way they work is that it's not who's going to leave the table with the most money at the end of the night. It's who's going to be forced out of the game, who's going to lose, like losing all your money in Monopoly, until finally there's a showdown between the two last players. Everyone else has lost everything. So what you do is you buy in, table stakes means that the amount of money you buy in for, you can't add more money later. You can't decide that you want to keep playing and go buy more chips and come back to the game. That's kind of natural, everyday kind of thing. If you're playing poker with your friends and you lose all your money, you, ask, you borrow money from someone, or you write a check, or you do something like that. But in, ta- but in World Series of Poker game, you can't do that. You have a certain amount of money to start, as in Monopoly, and if you lose that money, you're out. So it's a game in which players are trying to force other people out of the game and so that they will be the ones, the only ones who are left. And all the money in the end will go to one person um, if you're, if it, in a single round. Yeah? But how is it possible that the winner is not the one with the most chips? Or money? The winner is the one, w- not with the most chips, the winner is one with all the chips. With, with, yeah. Yeah, that is the winner. You just said in tournaments it's not about how much money you have no it's that that there's a single winner yeah. in in um, a poker game that you're playing with your buddies at home half the people will come on average half the people will come out ahead and half the people will I come remember. out behind so if you had a good night it doesn't mean that you won the most money it means you just won money mm-hmm. um, and if you had a bad bad night you lost money but, in, but this is more like Monopoly where there's only one person left standing um, it's I'm simplifying a little bit, but it's that way. That there's one person left standing. Yeah, they have all the chips. And the point is that a rich person can't stay in the game just because they can afford to buy more chips. That doesn't matter. It's like in the same way that you can be richer than someone you're playing Monopoly with, but that will make no difference whatever to who wins the Monopoly game because it, the Monopoly game is Monopoly money and it, you, only, you only get a certain amount of Monopoly money. So... <laughs> what Whitehead then says is that in situations like that, and it, I think in, in regular poker as well, in poker, you know, recreational poker, there's a version of this, but in um, in um, no limit table stakes poker, which is which is what Whitehead is talking about, um, every good player wants to be dramatizing a story as they play, and the story they want to be dramatizing is a story of something like maybe how they're they're on a trend, how their hands are getting better as the night progresses. Or how they're, on the other hand, you might want to dramatize another story, that someone is getting reckless as the night progresses. You may want people to think that you're getting reckless. So you are dramatizing yourself as someone who is very careful at the start, but then started getting reckless. And you may want to show that you're a bluffer. So you may bluff a lot at the start of the game. Um, The stakes go up in each round as well. So the amount of money that's at risk goes up in each round. So you may want to um, tell a story in which you are someone who bluffs when push comes to shove. And then you... Will when you get a good hand at the end you will behave in the same way as you did when you were bluffing at the beginning so what you're doing now is a kind of reverse bluff when you bluff in poker does everyone know what bluffing is in poker? anyone not? cough if you don't okay so um, the reverse bluff is you want people to think that you're bluffing you're bluffing about the fact that you're bluffing. You want them to look at you. What a bluff is, is you <coughs> want people to think that you have better, a better hand than you do. A reverse bluff is you want people to think that you want them to think that you have a better hand than you do. And then if you can get them to think that you want them to think that, they'll stay in when they shouldn't stay in. And then you'll take their money. So these are all what what um, Whitehead's coach says and what, and what she teaches him is that these are all poker techniques for looking like a certain kind of character going along a certain narrative arc in the game of poker. And so that poker and storytelling are interestingly allied to each other. and Okay, so two kinds of stories. One is the story of how you lost, and that story is the is a different kind of story than the story that you're telling at the table. What makes those stories different, let's say, ontologically? That is not as far as their contents go, but ontologically. What would that correspond to, those two different kinds of stories, in talking about the kind of literature that we normally read in English classes? What's the difference between the story you're telling while you're playing and the story you tell after you've lost? Just think of equivalents of that. What's the equivalent of a story that you tell after you've lost in fiction? Memoir? (laughs) Any memoir, right? And then I died. Um, you in don't fiction. To die to write a memoir. No, I, in, in fact, <laughs> in fact, it turns out that if you die, you can't write a memoir. Oh well. <laughs> um, no, in fiction. Well, you have styles where the narrator is like, "Let me tell you about the time Bobby went to." The store, or whatever, and then you have like kind of more omniscient. Yeah, you know, you know the whole story at the end. Yeah, something like that. So I was thinking it would be a first-person narrative because people who are talking about how they should have won but lost in poker, those are always first-person narratives, right? You've never heard anyone tell a story about, oh yeah, I was playing with Johnny, and um, if only he'd done this, um, he would have he would have won the whole pot. Those stories are much rarer. And stories about how close I came to winning it all and what a tragedy it was that I lost it. Um so I think that there that probably well probably the how I almost won the story would be parallel to a first person story. Um so just think of some first person story that ends sadly that you've read. Have you do you not read great literature? no Really. Can you repeat the criteria? <laughs> well, no, no, no. I, 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 we're trying to work out the criteria. But so the story is: here's how I should have won but lost in poker. Um, Maybe sometimes, but (coughs) they're much rarer. You'll get a story about how, at the last minute, I won and how amazing that was. But in general, the general poker player story is a a sad story. It's a a tragic story of loss um, that could almost... Something amazing almost happened, but it didn't. So generally, I think... That those stories, I mean, tell me if you guys disagree, but I think those stories, you said memoir is your first example, that those stories are first person. That is, that they are stories about how, let me tell you this thing that happened to me that was so intense and it almost panned out, but it's even more intense because it didn't. Because if I'd won, I'd have come away with $35, great. But it was how close I came. And then I lost. No one tells a story about how, like, um, I got a lottery ticket and it was only 400 away from the winning ticket. Um, No one tells those stories because you know that's totally random. But poker stories are stories about um, almost, about playing things so that they almost worked but didn't quite. And so they're partly stories about skill. I played it so it almost worked and that was very skillful of me, but it didn't quite work and in the end I lost. So I think they're first-person stories (coughs) and they're first-person stories with sad endings and the omniscience that Prue was talking about is that they're first-person stories with sad endings told by someone who knows the whole story so that now the story is over, told after the fact By someone who knows the whole story, so you could say, um, even though it's almost a contradiction in terms, it's a first-person omniscient narrator. um, That is, there's nothing in the telling of the story that is going to affect the story itself. So just think of some. Yeah. To keep the expedition flying. Say it again. To keep the Aspen, the Um What is that? By Orwell. Oh, I don't know it. Yeah. So describe it. It's not first person, but I guess it's told in the third person. It's about uh, the main character protagonist. He's going about his life. He wants to be like a writer. Yeah. But this was, I think, in the 50s or 40s. He was very poor at the same time that he finds a girl he likes. Uh, but basically, in the end, he just ends up living like... The, the usual life that like white picket fans, you know, but he's not a veteran. Yeah, and so and in that sense, it's sad. And do things almost work out? The things almost work out. Yeah, he almost gets published, but then he doesn't. And then yeah, things just go average. for him. Okay, good. So that's a, that's a that's a um, a good example of how things almost something amazing almost happened, yeah. and then didn't. Um, often there'll be love stories where something amazing did happen, but then it didn't. Um, it couldn't be stabilized and couldn't be kept going. Yeah? I was going to say Gatsby. Good, why? Because Gatsby dies at the end. Yeah, all right, so Gatsby, spoiler, Gatsby dies at the end. (laughs) Um, He almost wins Daisy back, but doesn't quite. And it looks like he's going to. It looks like what makes Gatsby great, um, his greatness is going to be enough to win Daisy back. That's very much a novel about lots and lots of money and um, it's almost Gatsby has almost enough money and almost enough power and presence in the world to overcome Tom Buchanan but in the end he can't Um, or maybe if um, they hadn't killed Mrs. Wilson if the car if they hadn't had the car crash it would have worked but it doesn't so yeah that's a good example Um, that's a that's a story with a sad ending it's a tragedy and part of what makes it a tragedy is that it almost they almost avoided fate, but in the end, through what we call a quirk of fate. So if you think of what the phrase quirk of fate means, what does it mean? Yeah. Something that like, wasn't supposed to happen, but does. Yeah, it's like fate had some bizarre element of randomness. That is, fate is something that's supposed to be straight ahead and inflexible and undeviating and unchanging, but instead there's this odd element of randomness, and that's a quirk of fate. So those kinds of stories are after-the-fact stories, and they begin something like, let me tell you how I almost won a whole lot of money and instead lost a whole lot of money. The other kind of story um, would be equivalent to what? A story which is being told as part of the story itself. Okay, I'll just suggest quickly that the story, the -the after-the-fact story is a story which is like a past-tense novel. Here's what happened... And it can even be a fast-tense novel, which, is, which goes something like, if you really want to know how I got kicked out of school and about my li- lousy life and everything, maybe I should start with all that David Copperfield stuff, but I'm not going to. Um, so what's that? All that David Copperfield kind of crap. Ackley kid. Catcher in the Rye. So that would be a story where you know the end at the beginning which is that um, all the stuff he tried to do, he failed. Um, The other kind of story might be closer to a poem. Here is how I feel. Here is what I'm doing. Let me tell you how I am feeling, even as I speak. Or it might be closer to drama. That is, you're watching things unfolding as they're unfolding. So there are two kinds of poker stories that actually do seem to correspond to different kinds of um, literature. And then there is a third kind of poker story, which is something like what Alexei is doing in The Gambler, which is a future-oriented story. I am going to bet, and I will win, because I feel that I'm hot. So that's a story in which he thinks that he's invulnerable, And that very feeling causes him to do what he does. But to feel that you're invulnerable is to have a story about yourself that you're already telling yourself. I am going to do this. I'm going to run through that minefield and get to the other side. I'm going to dive into the fire and not be burned. That's a future-oriented story. And so there the question is, what does that correspond to in literature? Okay, we'll talk more about this tomorrow, (coughs) and you'll finish the gambler by then, right? For next week, I don't know. I have to think about it. We're we're behind. I don't know if you noticed.